0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Kuppert. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what are the reasons to protect privacy?
1: So we've talked about privacy once before in a previous episode, all the way back in episode three, which was called, Is Privacy Dead? And in that episode, we sort of proposed the thesis that privacy is eroding as technology continues to advance. And that's a byproduct of smaller and cheaper surveillance technologies, the ease of collecting more and more data, and the increased ability to comb through that data, and how all these technologies together are leading to possibly a transparent society in the future where, where very little privacy is protected. Uh, But today we're not going to talk so much about that issue of, you know, whether you can protect privacy or whether there will or will not be privacy in the future. Instead, I want to look at a more philosophical question of why privacy is or isn't desirable in the first place. And so there's going to be two halves to this episode. The first is, uh, what are the instrumental benefits of privacy? So these are ways in which, you know, spying could lead to some misuse of that information right, or to some collateral damage issue that's caused by the spying, where the actual problem is related to the spying, but is more a result of the spying than a function of the spying itself. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to ask the question of whether, you know, privacy is inherently a good thing, and whether spying, just the actual act of looking, is somehow bad or immoral or something that we should fight against. So, Let's just launch right into the first half, which are the, the instrumental benefits of privacy. And I'm going to start with the one I think that always pops into my mind first, which is the idea that privacy can protect us against institutions that we don't trust. For example, if we don't trust our government, right, and we, or, and we view government as potentially tyrannical, then having some privacy creates some friction in the world that can you know, slow down the enforcement of laws we may not agree with. Or slow down the process of a tyrannical institution oppressing people.
0: Right. This is like the classic 1984 argument that if the government has eyes and ears in your home, then it will, uh, you know, get itself into every part of your life and um, and oppress you. And it's the reason behind things in our culture, like uh, you know, protection against uh, warrantless search and seizure or something. We uh, assume that that will slow down um, any ill-meaning government actions, and preserve some space of liberty for the person uh, who's being uh, investigated.
1: Right. And again, as with all of these instrumental benefits that we're going to talk about, this is a situation where it's not the actual act of spying by the government that is necessarily the thing we're concerned about. It's what the government then does or might do with that information, right? So this is tied into a premise that you have to have, which is that the institution itself is not trustworthy, and that we desire that it be slowed down and that roadblocks be put in the way. The second benefit of privacy, uh, that's more of an instrumental benefit, is that it can protect vulnerable groups or, you know, practitioners of like socially stigmatized behaviors. I mean, a convenient example might be, you know, homosexuality, which right. is, you know, not broadly accepted by everybody. And there are situations where someone's life could actually be at risk uh, if they're if if they're outed, right? Yes, if they were outed, and right. so in in those types of situations, again, it's not so much that the the gathering of the information or the spying itself that's dangerous. It's then what somebody does with it, right? If somebody spies and gathers information that somebody is a homosexual, and then that's used to out that person in an intolerant environment, that say leads to that person being harmed, right? Then that's a possibly a very real concern in a lot of places.
0: Right, right. And like the sort of simple thought experiment to make clear this uh, instrumental point, I think, is to just think about, you know, the difference in severity between uh, outing somebody as homosexual in a a rural community where people are very religious and intolerant versus uh, doing the same thing in San Francisco, right? It might be rude in both places, but... Um, if you have no fear that you're going to be harmed because of the information coming out, you might have a different feeling, uh, toward it.
1: Right. And so as with both of these, if we were to imagine a utopian benevolent government that we completely trusted and a, you know, happy, tolerant society where, you know, nobody was going to harm anybody else, then you could possibly argue that this type of privacy, uh, wouldn't necessarily be needed. And, of course, there is a flip side to this case because privacy, say, from uh, government, the flip side of that is, you know, the government having privacy from us in the form of secrecy. And oh,
0: okay, yeah, that's one major flip side, sure, uh, that you don't necessarily know what the government's doing, which makes it more
1: untrustworthy. Right, so privacy can hide authorities' flaws um, just as it can slow that authority down. Right, and I think a lot
0: of the... Uh, old ideas, like, for example, the American uh, framers' ideas about preserving individual privacy were premised on uh, an assumption that government would always have a certain amount of de facto um, opacity or whatever, privacy, that protected it and therefore it needed to be slowed down, therefore it needed to have laws uh, or rules set in place that constrained it with regard to individuals. But it's not actually clear that that necessarily needs to be the case forever, right? I mean, you can imagine a world, again, with like suffused with sensors and with uh, computers to help comb through the data uh, where people are able to monitor their government in a very detailed way, uh, which might create the kind of trust you'd need to then trust the government with more access,
1: right? Right, so, so while we value privacy for slowing down governments, it might be actually more effective to get rid of privacy for the government itself across the board, right, for to push for what's often called a covalence scenario, where, you know, we can see what the government's doing, and they can see what we're doing. And maybe that engenders the most trust overall. And, And taking that, this is more of a stretch, but taking that back to the issue of, you know, socially vulnerable groups, like, say, homosexuals that we might want to protect with privacy. I wonder, I mean, in the case of, You know, something like homosexuality, you and I, and probably most of our listeners, can agree that there's nothing immoral about that or wrong about that. Right. It's possible, I guess, maybe there might be other socially stigmatized behaviors that are socially stigmatized for what we might consider better reasons. Well,
0: of course. I mean, the obvious thing that pops into mind is like child pornography, right? Sure. I mean, that's something that is often cited as a reason for doing some draconian shit um, on the internet or elsewhere uh, because it is such a good reason. We all can agree that it's horrible. The people who do it ought to be caught and, um, and prevented from doing it. But the methods by which people are, you know, authorities are often trying to catch those who do it are quite uh, invasive and uh, do require like a lot of trust. So yeah, I think, you know, in this country, we're used to having like a kind of very high bar for the government uh, intervening. And we, we tend to think in our in our justice system that it's better to let guilty people go free than to jail innocents, you know. But that's not a cultural value that's um, universal. Around the world, there are different opinions about that. And uh, you could definitely imagine a society where basically they say, you know, in order to catch all child pornographers we're just going to have to look at everything
1: right maybe a um a, a thought experiment to sort of illustrate the point would be if we had some magic technology that could completely out everybody's sexual preferences would that be desirable to use so that would catch all of the child predators like overnight And identify them, but it would also out all the homosexuals and all the other people with various like proclivities that might not be... And that's a
0: really complicated thought experiment too, right? Because that would also out all the people who are like...
1: (laughs) Just have strange fetishes, right? Are
0: like, yeah, pedophiles, but are not um, actively harming anyone. it's like
1: pre-crime a bit.
0: And like, you know, that's a very tricky question. If you could accurately uh, pinpoint all the people who are attracted to, say, children but you had no information on how likely they were to act on their attraction, I'd say it would be immoral to presumptively lock those people up. Although you could maybe make an argument for presumptively surveilling them.
1: Well, I'm talking about sort of <laughs> knowing who they are. I mean, I guess the sec- take- going the second step to lock them up is maybe a separate question, right? So we're just talking about, I guess. can we... Uh...
0: Even just outing them publicly, again, I mean, that would uh, definitely expose them to harm. Yes. Um, And again, you know, it's like if they haven't done anything wrong yet, from my perspective of justice, it's hard for me to say that they would deserve that. I guess if your magic technology was so good that it could predict with very high accuracy whether they'd act on these urges, then I guess maybe my feelings would change.
1: (laughs) You're talking about the difference between intention and action, but just sort of to realign the thought experiment for a moment. I was sort of interested in like the trade-off between maybe preventing some actual sex criminals that we want to stop from abusing children at the expense of, you know, outing some homosexuals who maybe need their safety protected. And sort of like, it basically forces you to choose between the safety of some children somewhere and some homosexuals in some intolerant place somewhere else. Well,
0: and that's, again, it gets complicated the more you think about it because I'm going to take this in another weird direction again, but, uh, but because I kind of feel like if you added all the world's homosexuals, that would be far less... Damaging than alert than outing one homosexual somewhere. You know what I mean? Straight in numbers. The sheer volume of that. The noise of that. Would be so loud around the world. I think it would like actually—it it would actually change attitudes about homosexuality. I think, like, more or less instantaneously. Well, because
1: like at least one of the like you know members of the gay bashing lynch mob would be out at himself, and it would throw the whole mob into disarray. I mean, that's just
0: yeah. I mean, any mob that's at least ten people—it's you know, statistically one of they them. They say ten percent. Right? I don't
1: know. I I don't know where that figure came from. I don't
0: either. I have no idea if there's real numbers on this, and um, you know that's just a. Like an urban myth number you hear all the time. But uh yeah, I, I think um <laughs> the the just like there's you know, there's nearly ten billion people in the world. So if uh if that number is roughly right, you know, the the outing of a billion folks would be I think um I'd be far less worried about that in terms of people's safety than the outing of like a guy in a place to his close friends. You okay. Know? But anyway, so, so
1: just to bring this back that's, around—that's a completely yeah. tangential
0: comment—but I couldn't avoid
1: it. It's funny, but yeah. But let me just to summarize this section of the podcast. We're talking about one of the instrumental benefits of privacy being that it slows down uh, intolerant people and intolerant governments, basically, from persecuting people. But as we've shown, there's flip sides to that, and even sometimes that's you issue. need to persecute
0: yeah. people, basically. And uh, governments are kind of bad at choosing who to persecute, right? I mean, sure. this is. This is basically the problem we're talking about. The reason that p- governments in the past have persecuted you know, minorities and gays and women uh, is because they're kind of bad at choosing the correct um, folks to persecute. And so maybe eroding privacy would make them better at it. But if it didn't, it would also give them a powerful tool that they could misuse.
1: And if you generally distrust government... Uh, then You don't want to give them powerful tools. Yes. <laughs> Probably. Um, okay, so let's move on now to yeah. another uh, completely different... Possible instrumental benefit of privacy, which is that privacy, in, in essence, is an exchange of information. Right? It's like someone is gathering information from one place that maybe should or should not be protected and taking it away. Right? So you know, it's an it's an information issue, and therefore you know, privacy overlaps a lot with security. Uh, for example, as right, in, right, and, and okay. so for example, some of the problems that we've had recently with privacy are that the surveillance technologies that say the U.S. government has been using ha- create right, basically
0: in- constitute backdoor access
1: right they create incentives for the government to keep and preserve yeah this type of backdoor access into right. people's systems that can just as easily be exploited by criminals for right
0: these are just vulnerabilities basically that the government is finding in software and then instead of doing the morally right thing and disclosing the problem so that it can be fixed by the by the programmers they just keep quiet about it and start uh using it for their own ends the problem being of course that if they can figure it out so can some 13 year old in norway and then he sells it to a russian hacker and you've got a botnet on your hands or something
1: right and uh there's uh, kmart loses all their credit
0: <laughs> card numbers or whatever i mean you know there's a million examples of these from the news yeah
1: so it starts out you know However you feel about the actual act of spying is one thing, but it's incentivizing this basically bad security practices that have this collateral damage. Uh, right. That, that could be very, very bad in and of itself. The science fiction author Charles Strauss a while back put up a, a blog post that I thought was interesting in which he talked about the sort of like the, the, the bad feedback loop that you could get into with this type of thing. Um, I'm just going to quote from him because he says it pretty cleanly. He says... Even though the pursuit of this obsession with surveillance in the name of security is rendering our critical infrastructure insecure by design, making massive denial of service attacks and infrastructure attacks possible, any such attacks, right, so anytime someone actually exploits those vulnerabilities, will be interpreted as a rationale to double down on the very surveillance-friendly policies that make them possible. So it's a self-reinforcing failure mode, and the more it fails, the worse it will get. So basically... By wanting to spy on people, we create security vulnerabilities, which makes it easier for criminals to launch attacks, which then creates cybersecurity threats and fear about cybersecurity, which then causes us to want to do more surveillance to catch those cyber criminals, and it just get the problem gets worse. Right. Right.
0: Uh, yeah, that's uh, that does seem like the uh, cycle that uh, we are in.
1: Hopefully not, but I mean, um, hopefully we can break that loop.
0: At some point you would hope that somebody would break the loop and say that the best way that we can preserve our own security is by you know clamping down and and uh trying to eradicate these things but um it doesn't seem like the incentives are in the right place trying to moment.
1: eradicate the vulnerabilities you yeah, mean Yeah
0: exactly by collaboratively uh, disclosing them you know um following the sort of white hat hacker model of you try to break something and then you find a hole Uh, Let's say you're a government researcher who's um, tracking a a terrorist and you find a hole in Google's security, then you tell Google. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) And then Google goes, thank you, and fixes it, (laughs) right? Um, And uh, that would then create a certain trust between you and Google to where maybe you can serve them warrants when you need to actually access information, you know, um, in a legitimate spying sort of way.
1: In general, I think the overlap between issues of surveillance and issues of security kind of indicates that privacy needs to be understood as sort of uh, an issue of information flow, right? What information is allowed to flow where, when? And that means that, you know, some of these things that you might not think would be related, like, say, cybersecurity and privacy, and before we've talked about the issue of piracy, say... Um, or copyright infringement, like a lot of these issues tend to overlap in the digital space because right, it's all, all really about ab-
0: information access at the end of the day.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, so they're actually they end up being rather complicated issues. Um, so it's very difficult to just kind of say we need to protect privacy in all circumstances. So, anyways, the the last thing on the list of sort of instrumental uh, benefits to privacy is a bit fluffier, but um, just for the sake of argument, I'm going to go over it. Uh, one could say that we need privacy because it smooths over some social interactions. So we say, for example, we're not exposed to to flaws of people that we know uh, because of a certain amount of privacy that exists in the world, or we're not exposed to so- a certain amount of negativity that exists in the world, like things people might say about us behind our backs, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this kind of smooths over social situations, and, and maybe like if we were to know about all the flaws and negativity out there, you, you could argue that might like induce a greater level of social anxiety across the board for people.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I don't know that I agree with that, I just think that plausibly you could argue that. Right. Um,
0: well, you would imagine if you just introduced a no privacy world to our current society that, you know, humiliation levels would go up, embarrassment levels would go up, anxiety would go up, trust maybe would go down. But you could also imagine a society um, adapting to that, I think, pretty quickly. And I think there's ample evidence in the world that uh, different societies have different amounts of privacy and and deal with it relatively well. Um, Right. They come up with cultural answers uh, and ways to both carve out space for themselves, uh, if necessary, and also, you know, uh, they... Have different expectations, honestly, of of how much privacy they should get.
1: Yes, I agree. And, you know, the ultimate counter to this, I think, is that, you know, people can always socially agree to just not look at these things, even if they are available. You know, if they induce anxiety. uh, You just
0: keep your head down and you're watching your screen and you can avoid
1: unpleasant. Like, you don't have to look up what your friends said about you and you don't, uh, you know, have to. Fixate or on trying to find the flaws in your partner, say or whatever, right? Right, right. Not
0: to say some people won't do that, but it doesn't. It's not required just because it's possible. And I think you see versions of this all the time. I mean, you know, there's ways I could use modern technology to make myself miserable in that sort of way that I choose not to do all the time. So, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that that doesn't strike me as there might be some minimum level, maybe, of privacy that you need to. To adapt you know to be able to adapt, and maybe we'll dip below that minimum level that's possible, I guess, but I doubt that any particular level of privacy over that theoretical minimum uh is better than any other level. I think you just sort of adapt to it, and the people around you do too.
1: another probably even flimsier argument you could make is that privacy preserves mystery right I mean this is if uh <laughs> To the extent that, you know, mystery is a value in certain aspects of life, you know, this is sort of a romantic point of view. I think this is a concern maybe for some people. I think, again, this is something that society can adapt to.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't personally relate to that very much, but I understand what you're saying.
1: (laughs) Right. I think it's it's a feeling that's out there. So I'm just trying to cover all the bases. Sure. So uh, just to sum up this section, the... The instrumental benefits of privacy are that it it slows down tyrannical institutions and intolerant people from harming others. Mm-hmm. Uh, protecting privacy often dovetails with protecting security. Right. And this third issue, which is that, you know, privacy maybe smooths over some social situations and protects us from some anxiety-inducing information that maybe we don't actually want.
0: Right, sure. There's some just de facto benefits to not knowing everything. Sure.
1: Yeah. But now that all that's aside, I want to try to unpack the issue of whether spying is bad in and of itself. For example, just the mere act of looking, right? Like if I look at your diary, but then that doesn't affect my behavior at all, and nothing bad happens as a result of that, right? There's no actual misuse of that information. I don't republish it anywhere. I don't use it to blackmail you. I don't tell you that I've found it. Maybe I immediately forget it, right? Does the actual fact that I looked at it, is that somehow still maybe immoral or wrong or something that we would want to protect?
0: Right, right. And Um, you can abstract that even a little further and say, what if I had a machine look at it and it was just set to alarm me if certain criteria were met? So I, I think there's a level of abstraction at which you might say, oh, well, this doesn't even feel like, you know, an invasion anymore in the traditional sense.
1: But I think that, you know... But it is. Well, it, or it, it might be. I mean, that's the sort of the question that I'm asking because I don't know exactly how I feel about this right now. But I think just to go through some of the arguments that might say that it is bad to even just look at some private information that somebody wants to keep private um, is, first of all, the, the gut reaction that's often involved, right? Which is just the sort of like intuition that people have the the creepiness factor uh that you know people like their privacy a lot of people do uh, sure without,
0: they're used to it for sure
1: um they would prefer not to be spied on i suppose just from a purely you know democratically minded standpoint you might just say well if a large majority of people want their privacy then maybe they should have it because it's a preference because sure, people
0: have. should govern themselves and we should honor yeah, honor fine. preferences
1: to the extent that we can mm-hmm. um you know, as long as it's not at the expense of some, you know, minority. So I think you could argue that. Uh, you know, I've I know that uh, Cory Doctorow has an article. Like Cory Doctorow is someone who's written a lot about all aspects of this, including the overlap with cybersecurity that we talked about earlier. But he had one article, I believe it was in the Guardian, where he actually took a pause from those more instrumental arguments to discuss why he thought, you know, surveillance was just bad. It was just plain bad in and of itself. Right. The way, like, right. I saw this. The way like torture is bad. Right. right. Like the, he was making the comparison to how like with torture like it doesn't matter if it works. It's still immoral. It's still bad. Right. Maybe right. it works. Maybe it doesn't. But like torturing is something that we kind of want to agree is wrong. Um, uh, so he felt that way about surveillance. And I, I thought his argument was not that solid. He he talked a little bit about his young daughter and this idea of sort of the freedom to fail. Right. I guess which to me is really actually still an instrumental argument. It's kind of the freedom from humiliation and social anxiety that we right, were talking about Right, but that has more earlier. to do
0: with cultural response, doesn't it? Yeah. And if everybody's s- surveilled and everybody's got their stuff available to be searched, then it just won't be so humiliating to have those kind of normal failures um, as it is now. I don't. I don't foresee that being the big problem. I think the big problem is the instrumental side of it, the fact that you can't guarantee any institution with these powers will not act um, outside its uh,
1: boundaries. They, That they might misuse the information that they got That they'll gather. misuse it, yeah. I mean,
0: right. it seems to me like the problem happens at the moment of misuse, and that the frequency of misuse is generally high <laughs> with this sort of thing. Uh, so far as we know.
1: Right, and if you do end up feeling that way, then you, you know, it raises the question of whether a lot of these issues are best dealt at the level of attacking the misuse rather than attacking the collection of the data in the first place.
0: And the only argument I can see against that is that if you don't create the conditions for the misuse, then you can be quite certain the misuse won't
1: occur. Right, it's a bottleneck where maybe you can just, just not have you, to deal with the misuse. If you create the
0: conditions, you can be basically certain the misuse will occur and then you have to root it out and fight it. You know, and so that, that's the, I think, the practical argument for why you might want to just avoid uh, having a widespread surveillance in the first place, even if it's technologically possible, just sure. because you don't want to create any one group, whether it's Google or AT&T or the government, with the um, access to that misuse.
1: Well, and when it comes to talking about attacking the misuse versus attacking the surveillance itself, just to make this a little more concrete. You know, we might be talking about, say, rather than worrying about how spying is going to out a bunch of harmless drug offenders, we might say, well, why don't we just rationalize our drug policy to begin with, say, or... Right.
0: Well, to the extent that losing privacy, we think we touched on this when we talked about this before. To the extent that losing privacy can force us to be a more tolerant society, I think that that could potentially be of great value um, as we do out people in their... Casual drug use habits, their sexual habits, their other harmless or victimless things that are currently not tolerated in our society, we may find that we tolerate those things more.
1: Which would be, yeah, maybe a positive side effect that could come out of this. Or you know,
0: speeding limits. Right? We talked about this. Like if uh, if it becomes impossible to speed without getting caught because of widespread surveillance, and this happens before self-driving cars get us all off the road, uh, which I realize is an assumption. You might find that we have to change the speed limits because we have, you know, if everybody who deserved a speeding ticket got a speeding ticket tomorrow, there'd be a disaster in the court system. Um, <laughs> there's no way they could handle right. There's a lot of areas you'd have
1: to bump up five or ten, you know, and so on and so forth. Right yeah.
0: to get you, because yeah, because uh, the actual norms, the actual behavior that people are doing is not terribly correlated to the law right now because of a history of lax enforcement. So yeah, I mean. There's going to be cultural fallout from lack of privacy, and it's definitely going to be uh, full of growing pains. But it's possible, I think, that this privacy would actually cause us to be more rational and more reasonable in our, more tolerant in in both our laws and our attitudes.
1: Well, I certainly hope so. But anyways, just to bring this back to the the intrinsic benefits of privacy, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Can we make the argument that spying is wrong? independent of all these instrumental problems. And I think the argument that I find compelling is coming from a philosopher named Michael Lynch, uh, or at least that's how I was exposed to this argument, although I had sort of conceived of something similar on my own. The best way I can sort of summarize it is that if you do the thought experiment of sort of imagining future technology, like what the best surveillance technology of the future is and you imagine the sort of mind meld technology that we've discussed before on the podcast the type of thing that's dramatized in uh ramez nam's book nexus for example where two people can literally share each other's thoughts right but maybe you imagine the one-way version of that where one person literally invades another's thoughts say right uh without their uh consent right uh If you start with that type of technology, which seems to be be the logical endpoint of surveillance technologies, right? Like, what could be a more powerful surveillance technology or a bigger privacy invasion than to actually see someone's internal thoughts, right? right? And right there, I think then it starts to... The issue of privacy suddenly overlaps with the issue of, like, autonomy. Or
0: individualism,
1: right? And individualism and personal identity. Yes. And it starts to become an issue where maybe long-term we do need a principle that says, you know, privacy is to be protected and spying is wrong because the endpoint in a world in which we don't have such a principle is, is hive mind, right? Is, is like is an issue where we don't really respect individual's, you know, unique boundaries. access to their own thoughts even. And if that's an issue, then it's like we don't really have individual personhood And then, you know, maybe we have some global consciousness or, you know, I mean, I I don't know what that endpoint looks like, but it it makes it clear that this is a thornier issue as you get further down the technological track.
0: Right. Well, so I think if you value individualism and personhood, um, then you do want to protect some sphere of privacy uh, in which for that person to exist. And maybe that sphere of privacy is all the way down to the secret thoughts in your mind. Uh, maybe it expands outward to the media on your computer. Like recently, the court system said your cell phone is not fair game if you get pulled over, uh, that we have personal access to data of that sort. But I don't know. I guess when I do this thought experiment, I feel like it does always lead to hive mind and ultimately the knowledge of the human macro organism or whatever uh, the hive mind is, uh seems like more important than the trivial desire to be a, a distinct being of, you know, some individual. Right. and So I still feel <laughs> like I ultimately come down on the side of, it'll adu- it'll adjust, and on the other side, the macro being won't be upset it exists.
1: And, and just to make it clear, the jump that gets us to hive mind uh, is, like, let's say if I were to look into Ted's brain with, like, a high-powered scanner that was, like, could actually gather at high resolution, like, you know, his entire brain structure, his entire brain pattern, like all of his thoughts, all of his memories, everything, you know, similar to the mind uploading scenario, then there's a sense in which I have created a copy of Ted. <laughs> and to the extent that I digest and can consume all that information, there is an ex- extent to which I am Ted or have merged with Ted and have sort of, like, violated the boundaries that exist between me and Ted. So right. that's that's how this, like, you know, you keep pushing this further and further out, and it does eventually just erode the idea of separate personhood altogether.
0: Well, right, and we may find once we can emulate brains that the whole idea of an individual is something that was basically a phantom of our physical limitations because we're going to have maybe infinite Teds and Johns and...
1: But anyways, you're more comfortable with this than me because this is at the point at which I say, like, uh, you know, maybe I value autonomy and I don't have any, like, reason to value it other than it's maybe one of my first principles along with the way that I value, you know creativity or not suffering or like the way that I value like certain fundamental things right so I feel like like autonomy might make that list for me so I I might come down on the side that there is some sphere of privacy that needs to exist and right you know exactly where the boundaries stop like do they stop at my cell phone do they stop at my brain do they stop at just like one part of my brain like like are my you know memories as of this current day or like last, like maybe there's a, could be a statute of limitations on memories. Maybe the court can grab my memories as of the last year for the purposes of trying to put me in jail, but they can't go back to any memories that precede that date. You know? I mean, I don't, you could draw these lines in various,
0: they could be highly arbitrary.
1: Bizarre places. Right. Yeah. I
0: mean, it's interesting. I guess where it, you know, where it creeps me out is where you think about involuntary uh, mind control where you know, somebody's in your brain, they're reading your thoughts, you're not necessarily aware of their presence, and they can potentially also pump thoughts into your brain so that your own internal voice says things to you that are not originating within your meat space. Uh, or maybe they even have direct neural motor control and they can move your hand without your you know, conscious, um, uh, the way a reflex does, without your conscious uh, approval. And, you know, that sort of thing is incredibly frightening, and if you were awake and conscious while being mind-controlled in that way, uh, I can imagine that being, like, the most terrifying thing imaginable, you know, I mean...
1: Right, it overlaps um, with control over your body, which is, you know... Yeah, well, because your mind controls your
0: body, so if somebody hacks your mind, your body comes with it, you know, I mean, to a large extent, and, uh, you know... Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly terrifying. The idea of like merging with the uh, with the uber consciousness, I don't know. That just seems like if we live long enough, that's what we get. But in between then and now, somebody just hacking your personal mind and using it for their own personal good. I'm reminded of the first 20 minutes of that the last Shane Carruth movie, um, oh, right. Upstream Color. That movie turned into being about something else, kind of. But at first, it seemed like it was going to be about mind control, and they feed the girl the weird bug, and then they make her empty her credit card or your empty her bank account and stuff like that. And that felt to me like terrifying and believable as a sort of mind control um, allegory. I think that's a really interesting concept.
1: It's definitely a frightening one. So, yeah. so, but like what you're talking about, I mean, so I mean that's a wh-
0: privacy violation uh, for sure.
1: Certainly. So what scares I mean. you is a world in which there's still, Autonomy, but I don't have but it. But you don't have it. Yeah,
0: like losing autonomy. If we all lose it together, if you we don't all lose it together. I feel like, who am I to say I'm gonna, I'm the one guy who's gonna stay outside the hive mind. That seems selfish. The lone honestly, data cowboy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus, I mean, it seems like you know, inside that hive, it's gonna be so warm, and there's gonna be so much other thoughts. I don't know. It seems interesting. I'd, I'd do it, but a world in which you're uh, somebody else's botnet machine. <laughs> is a much darker world. And, you know, there are people walking around with autonomy, you just don't have it. That, uh, that well, definitely strikes me as, as not desirable. When,
1: when you say that terminology, you're someone else's bot machine, then I now suddenly see that this is a strong overlap with what the second instrumental point we made, that privacy overlaps with security. Of course. Right, so uh, maybe those are, are. Maybe this is. I mean, really mind this- control
0: is a security problem for sure. That's what we're talking about. Somebody hacks your mind, you know. So yeah, absolutely.
1: But you know, I I, I I guess you know, it's just showing that we've kind of maybe strayed back into being instrumental, right? Because they're not just looking at your mind anymore; they're having a misuse of your mind, which is that they're using it to get you to do something. So, so I, I think we'd have to pull back to the initial thought experiment, which is like if they're just opening your thoughts up but not doing anything with it
0: right 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 well the you know then you get into like a sort of philosophical debate about like whether that is even happening you know i mean uh a consequence seizureless search right where somebody copies the files off of your computer reads their contents but no actions in the world are taken and no further disclosure is made and no no data goes missing on your side it's I think arguable that that just didn't happen, <laughs> that that, 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 especially if
1: a machine did it,
0: especially if a machine did it. Yeah. But even if a person did it, if you can verify that nothing occurred, that no changes in the world were made as a result, uh, which I recognize is hard to verify. Um, but if you, if you can verify that, then.
1: Right. I agree. That feels, and
0: that's a tree falling in the forest. I agree
1: that that feels palatable, but well, first of all, the, the philosopher Michael Lynch talks about that. And he would argue that if somebody programmed that machine, that's taking that action then it, there is still some judgment that can be passed upon that person. But also... they uh, can
0: be, but if it's not, if it's not actually following up any... I mean, if the judgment is nothing more than an internal marking inside the machine and no reporting is happening and no action is being taken as a result of reporting, then I still see that being a philosophically null situation. Even
1: if, if, you, if you replace your computer with your entire brain, like someone is like literally scanning... Everything that is you, which you know by the very act of that, almost essentially makes it almost a, a copy of you, and they're doing that uh, against your will. Uh, but then, you know, then they immediately delete it or they do nothing with it, right?
0: Right. Well, and it, I mean, I guess you know, if they're emulating your brain and they're running a brain emulation and it's having consciousness, well, or then or that's something, an ethical dilemma. Then you have sort. a different sort of ethical dilemma, and I'm not sure where I stand on that question. That's complicated, but. Assuming that it's akin to reading files, even if it's your brain and that's the, what the what the files are, but if it's akin to reading files in the sense that no consciousness is stirred, because I feel like that's an action that counts as an action, then uh, then yeah, then I I guess to me I, I don't think that I can point to that as being. Um, a fundamental violation of my personhood, the way that controlling my mind or me entering a hive mind and losing my ego border or something definitely does feel like a violation of my personhood.
1: That's the point, What the argument that this particular philosopher makes is that that would be a violation of your moral personhood in and of itself. And uh, I am actually, I think, more receptive to that position than you are, although I'm like a little uncertain about how I feel about this. But but I'm not
0: seeing it. I don't know. It feels like... um, you know, it, it's, it seems to me like... It's
1: arbitrary, but it's like, it's it's a bit of a, just a gut thing to me. I mean, I, I you know, maybe I'm simplifying the argument and maybe the argument's stronger than this. You, my, Our listeners should, should look it up and we'll post links. But I think, um, you know, it does feel different to me when it's an invasion of my own mind.
0: Versus your computer files. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just not seeing the difference, really. I don't know. I mean, I guess I can see that it's a slippery slope, because but if, if you, you can't what- actually affect the mind, if you can't...
1: But if you know everything that I know, then I am no longer unique in this world. You've just taken away something of value of me. You've taken away, I guess, my, my individual scarcity, right? right? The scarcity that is me and my own mind being the only copy of myself. And I know that, like, you know, if, let's take the consciousness issue out of it. I agree that's a, that's a different issue. But, like, just reading everything that's in my mind or even reading a large portion of it is like eroding my uniqueness, or I, I think that's what it is, or that's I don't know if that's the original argument that this huh. philosopher makes, but that's that's I think maybe my argument that I'm gonna make based upon it my, being inspired by what he said. I think that's to me what makes sense here, um, and that's where it feels like a in invasion of my autonomy. It feels like I'm no longer, you know, like because I, I feel like all that I am is information, and when you take an, like when you have access to enough of the information that makes up me. It's like you've taken me or like you, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is why the Navajos didn't want their pictures taken. Right. And I mean, I think that was not enough information, obviously, but there's going to be a point at which, uh, we can do something that's like taking a picture and have something that's like the whole person, um, stored. Uh, this is the point of that, uh, David Marusek short story, The Wedding Album, which is about a simulated person who's, um has their simulation taken on their wedding day and then uh, turns into a sort of weird memory slave who pops up once a year to remind them about the day they got married. Um,
1: Right, and that's obviously rich with that other ethical problem of like, you know, sort of borderline torturing a conscious being. Right, well, I mean,
0: it's told from the point of view of the robot, so you have a strong um, feeling that uh, the robot's conscious and, uh, you know, so obviously it does get into those ethical dilemmas in the story, uh, which we don't want to get into, but of course, I think if you're a materialist and believe like we do that all we are is a kind of information, maybe a very complex kind of information, but but not anything um, special, sauce or or supernatural. Then uh, yeah, to some extent, we are you know our uniqueness is an illusion um, enforced by the limits of our world, and those limits may go away because of technology. But again, I, I guess I'm not quite buying that even a comprehensive reading of all of our thoughts is quite us, you know, like I think you need, um, you do need to, you have to scan run it. things at an emulatable level. I guess, you don't. I don't know that you need to run it, but you need to be able to run it, I think, or it's not really a me because we're a. Because I'm a process, a like, process. Yeah, I think you can recognize Ted not just by what I've done in the past, but by like how I respond to a new input. Right? You could ask me a new question, and the way I answer it would define, in some way, how Ted would answer that question. So I think if you can't do that process uh, with your with the data you've taken, then I don't think you've you've reached that threshold to me. Of really uh, taking my uniqueness away. Obviously, if I write something and you steal it, uh, you took a little bit of my uniqueness. So this is along that spectrum. Um, But to me, it feels more like you're stealing my notes. And if you steal my notes and don't publish them and don't use them to make your own notes, then I kind of feel like, well, sort of like you didn't steal my notes. You know, I mean, technically, if you tell me about it later, oh, I didn't do anything with them, but I stole those notes. I, you know, I thought about doing something with them, but I didn't do it. I'd be like, well, that's weird, and now I'm going to trust you less, but I can't be that mad you didn't do anything with them. Right. <laughs> right? Um, so I don't know. I I, I guess um, I, I think it's really interesting, and I think that our uniqueness is at risk as technology progresses, and that's something we all have to grapple with, and I find that very disturbing. But I'm not sure... Yeah, outside of the instrumental arguments, which I think are the most strong, I, I I'm not sure that I actually... I'm convinced that uh, that you know that privacy is um, is its own
1: value. Um, so you would not be in favor of a principle that said that moving forward we should have some sort of inviolatable sphere around people, um, and and those boundaries could be negotiated as to where they stop. Right? Um, you would not like argue that people should have some protected boundary of information that they exist within.
0: Oh, no, I think that might be very good public policy on account of people have
1: expectations. But you don't think there's a moral justification there?
0: N- no. I guess not as a first principle, no. I mean, I think people have expectations of privacy and taking it away rapidly will cause unrest. And I think uh, we still have a lot of intolerance and cruelty in the world and protecting people is a real moral imperative, I think. Uh, you know, Not outing gay people if they're going to get beaten to death I think is absolutely a moral imperative. So... If you can prove at some point in the future that we have like a transparent enough and/or benevolent enough government, a tolerant enough society, to where you know non-destructive personal differences are just not going to be an issue, then I, you know, in that theoretical world which I recognize is sort of rosy, then I, I could be totally okay with privacy. In the meantime, we need to make compromises where we have enough privacy to prevent the worst kinds of misuse. And I think we should expect to continue to see more erosion, though, in overall privacy.
1: Well, I think you and I agree that the the trend is that any de facto privacy in anything remotely like a public space is like, you know, on the chopping block.
0: Right. right. And it's always been, I mean, public space has always been like sort of the least private or by definition. Uh, and so that's continue. That trend's obviously continuing.
1: And I think private spaces that you share with other individuals are also threatened. Like I, right. think, I think the second that two people now are in the same room, the amount of privacy that can be preserved becomes questionable. Sure. Uh, but anyways, this is this is all much better covered in our third episode, so I uh, guess you should have already listened to that. Yeah, if you're that.
0: interested in that, you can um, jump back to episode three. We'll have a link uh, below. But anyway, this was to talk about you know more like the philosophical elements of privacy, and we want to hear what you think. Send us a letter or, or leave us a comment uh, or send us a tweet. Oh, yeah. So a couple of housekeeping things. Um, We told you there was going to be some experiments coming up and we're about to start two of them. Uh, One of them is that we're going to start releasing the podcast biweekly. So we'll have two podcasts a month every other Monday instead of every week. We just want to do this to try to keep the quality level high um, because, uh, as I'm sure you realize, it's a lot of work to prepare these things and we don't want to do half-assed ones
1: yeah exactly and then the other uh piece of news is that we are going to be experimenting with guests it's something we've talked about but uh, yeah we actually
0: have our first guest
1: lined up for next episode yeah
0: uh so next week be sure to tune in and uh listen to us as we talk to uh john danaher thanks for listening all right we'll see you in two weeks To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at ReviewTheFuture.com. Thanks for listening.